it's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. I, I, you know, to me, coaching is teaching, and, and I always wanted to be a teacher. When we first started the team, I mean, we were taking walk-ons. We were taking kids who had never fenced before. My first All-American was a field hockey player whose friend had come out for the team and after field hockey season convinced her to come out. And so we were really starting from scratch, you know, basics. Our guest this week is Dr. Nikki Frank, who just completed her 47th year as the head women's fencing coach at Temple University. She is one of the premier fencing coaches in the country. She also was an outstanding fencer in her own right, competing in the 1976 Olympics, and she was a member of the 1980 Olympic team. She has been inducted into the United States Fencing Association Hall of Fame, and she is here in our studio. Dr. Frank, thanks for stopping by. Thank you for inviting me. Fencing is one of those sports that I'm fascinated with. I know very little about because my usual only experience or only exposure to it is during the Olympics. So give me, if you were trying to define the sport of fencing and give its essence, how would you do that? Well, basically, fencing is the age-old art of offense and defense, where the object originally was to injure or kill your opponent before they injured or killed you, pretty much. Um, it became a sport uh, uh, with the first... It's been part of the modern modern Olympics since 1896. And so it became a sport as opposed to dueling uh, to the death, which is how it, it first started. And so uh, very little chance of injury or anything like that. But again, the idea is to touch or uh, your opponent uh, and before they touch you. What was your introduction to the sport? I began totally by chance. I was involved in, in sports all through high school, different sports. And this and is New York City, right? This is in New York City, correct, at Seward Park High School. And my senior year, a new teacher came and started a fencing club. And I was, it sounded cool and interesting. And I said, well, I'll try that because I was playing tennis. I was playing basketball, doing other sports. And so I said, you know, I would give it a try. And from that point on, fencing has really changed my life in, in, in many different ways. Was it something immediately you were like, oh, wow, I've really discovered something? Was it something that it took a little while to take? I knew I enjoyed it right away. It, you know, it's, uh, you know, people equate it to a physical game of chess where you actually have to try to outsmart, outmaneuver your opponent. You have to think quick on your feet because you have to not just outthink them, but you have to then act it out physically. And so that's the challenge of, of fencing in that it, it is something that you really have to be able to analyze quickly and then act out. And so I knew I enjoyed that aspect of it. And then I had some people that I met who were fences. I started going to a couple of tournaments, and, and they said, oh, you're really talented. You should stay with this, and, uh, and convinced me to uh, go to Brooklyn College where there was a very good coach. From that point, it really has changed things, my plans. When did... You start to, like they, people tell you you're pretty good, go to college like this. When does that start to translate to a track that leads to Pan Am games, Olympic games, stuff like that? Because is that something where you kind of looked around and you were like, wow, I'm really making a move here? Or was this something where somebody said, hey, you're good, you've got a talent for this. If you do X, Y, and Z, this is possible. My my main focus was college fencing. You know, when I when I first graduated out of high school, went to Brooklyn College, and uh, Denise O'Connor, who was an Olympian, who is an Olympian, also 
uh, was the coach there at the time, and um, she really developed my my skills. And you know, we were a very good college team, and so that was really my focus. Um, I wasn't sure I wanted to continue fencing, and I was lucky enough to to come to Philadelphia and work under a coach here. His name was Lajos Chizar. He was a coach at Penn for many, many years. Uh, he was a Pan Am coach, an Olympic coach, wonderful man. And uh, he kind of took me under his wing and, and continued my development. And that's when I started looking at things outside of uh, college. How crazy is that when you start to, you know, things like international competition, not even Olympics, but just Pan Am Games, World University, like all this stuff gets thrown around. Or did it just, in the context of where you were on the path, it just made sense? You know, it, it just happened. I, I've, just, I've always said I'm very blessed. Things just kind of fell into place. Uh, I grew up in Harlem, uh, had no intention of ever leaving New York, um, came here to, to go to graduate school at Temple, and they needed someone to teach the fencing classes. And so my coach at Brooklyn College said, well, you know, go to Temple, get your master's. They'll pay for your tuition because I had no money. And um, and then you can continue to and then you can come back to New York. And then someone at Temple introduced me to coach uh, to Maestro Cesar. Um, and again, it was just all just by chance. And I've had an opportunity to travel all over the world, uh, which I never would imagine as a, as a kid. I wasn't the type of kid that uh, grew up saying, "Oh, I want to be an Olympian when I grow up." I, it never even dawned on me. I just followed the path that was laid out in front of me and. My first international trip was to to Russia, and my very last one was to China, and a lot of places in between. And these are things a kid growing up in Harlem never thinks about or feels they have the opportunity to do. What is international competition like? Are you able to? It was. Is it overwhelming at first, or are you able to kind of compartmentalize it that it's just I'm doing the same thing I always do, just in a different venue. It, when I was fencing, when I was competing, it was overwhelming. Uh, the the European European countries were really very very strong. Uh, American fencing at that time was not as strong, and so you you went to these tournaments really as an underdog. And um, now U.S. fencing is some of the top. We have some of the top fences in the world, number one fences in the world. But at that time, it was pretty overwhelming, and you were in awe of people you had heard of. And now you actually get to compete against them. So it takes time to get over that and then just to, like you said, to practice your craft and to do what you do. 76 Olympic team, when does pursuit of a spot on that start? Uh, It starts two years before. We have one of the nice things about fencing is that we have uh, an objective uh, point system. There were some problems in the past with with some uh, subjective choices that were made. And and so U.S. fencing really – had the foresight to come up with an objective point system. And so initially, back when when I was competing, there were several tournaments, uh, four or five tournaments each year, that only the top 24 ranked fences could attend. And so you gain points based on how you you finished in those tournaments. And so, uh, again, you had to accumulate enough points to get into, at that time, the top five uh, got to go to Pan Am Games, the Olympic Games. And so... You just kept working and trying to gain points in, in those tournaments. So when you make the 1976 Olympic team, what is that like? I mean, before you, we even talk about going, just, just, making, the just team. making the team. That was amazing. 
it was just um, something that I'd worked very hard for. Uh, my coaches had worked very hard with me. Um, I was the 1975 foil champion, and so that gave me a lot of points to to make that 76 team. And so I was really peaking at that time. And so uh, having the 70, making that team, having the games in Montreal, which was fantastic uh, because my family could attend and I had just gotten married the year before. And so it was, um, it, it was very, very exciting and very uh, satisfying knowing that your hard work paid off. Was winning that, you mentioned winning that 75 championship and you get all those points. Was that the moment like the, whoa, this is going to happen. I'm going to Montreal. Um, it happened, that started, that was the beginning of the year, and then uh, the points that continued after that, and then going to the Pan Am Games. At that time, the Pan Ams were a very big deal. You know, it was the U.S., uh, at that time in fencing, the U.S., Cuba, and Canada were the strong were the strong teams. And so going to those, going to the Pan Am Games, gaining that experience, and then, again, the excitement of, of being an Olympian. You arrive for the 76 Olympic Games. What's it just like? Just the 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 pageantry, the the pomp and circumstance, the uh, what's take me through it. It, it. I mean, it's it's you're really in awe of uh, being in a non traditional sport like fencing. Uh, no one really knows, you know, who you are, but you know who everyone else is, and so you see all the track stars and the basketball stars and the tennis stars, and uh, you you are just overwhelmed and in awe that you're actually in uh, in uh, village where they're also walking around and you get to talk to international uh, competitors, uh, international fencers, and you make friendships and, and you develop relationships. And it's really a, a very exciting experience. What is it like to have success at an Olympic Games, to walk out of a competition and to have defeated someone else from another country that is at the top of the sport? I mean, that, that's got to be incredible. It is. Um, you know, it's the feeling that you have just walking into the venue to start out with and and all of the, the protocols and, and things that are done very different from what you're used to. And you, sometimes you kind of looked around and just couldn't believe you were there. Um, but it was very um, it, it was very inspiring and it was very exciting. At that time, as I said, U.S. fencing was getting stronger, but we were not the the favored countries. But we we went and we fought and we and we did the very best we could. But you were happy just to make the team. <laughs> Do you remember all of your your competitions at those Olympic Games? Like, I mean, maybe not all the specifics, but if someone mentions a name, you're like, oh, yep, matched up with that person, matched up with like. I remember some of it. I have to be honest. Uh, it was a long time ago, and the memory's fading. <laughs> but um, I remember some of it. But you never forget the feeling. You never forget the feeling. So you go, you compete in '76, you make the team in '80, but you don't go to the Olympics because of the boycott. Is that something you started to anticipate was going to happen as the political situation between the U.S. and the the Soviet Union is decaying because of everything with the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan or did that compl- kind of hit you like a brick wall when you learned you weren't going to go? Somewhere in the middle. I think most of the athletes were hoping that it would not happen. We we started feeling uh, this might happen as we got closer. Um, you know, it was very, very frustrating, myself and, and other people more than myself. Uh, at the time, I was lucky. I was still in going to school. I was teaching. I, 
you know, I, but there were people who had put their lives on hold for four years to try to make a team and then to have someone else take that away from you is so anti-sport. You know, sport is all about you get what you earn. And here you earn something and there's someone not involved that takes it away. And it was very frustrating uh, for a lot of the athletes. We had at that time, there was no, you know, financial support for fencing. And so you had spent your time and your money and your effort to to make a team. And then for political reasons that, as you can see, even today, there are still problems with Afghanistan. Um, it wasn't going to really make a difference. It was just a, a, a statement that used the athletes as, as, as pawns in a way. And so it, it was very frustrating. But, you know, that's what politics is. I mean, I can only imagine if 80 had been your only window and that, that happens. Did it? I don't want to say soften because it's so much work. But the fact that you at least got in and got to go at 76, does that help? with the wound of 80 a little bit that you, at least you got to experience. Do you understand where, yeah, where I'm yeah, going no, with that? I understand. Um, you know, if, if 80 had been my only opportunity, it probably would have stung a little bit more, but it still stung. It's still, you know, I was a better fencer four years later. I had trained for four more years to, to get better and, and had worked very hard and, as had all of the athletes. And, and so it was still a, 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 quite a blow uh, to us. So many, international championships was there a stretch of your career where you was your strongest what would you say was was your strongest was it going through that 80 that was yeah that that spanned from 75 I would say um through 80 uh was was pretty much uh, where I I think I I really peaked Uh, I knew 80 was going to be I was going to retire after that from competition um, you know, there were other things that I, I wanted to do in my life. And one of the things um, that I think helped me is that I always tried to keep everything in balance. Um, it was never, you know, I never put all my eggs in one basket. So even though I was training and working hard to to make an Olympic team and to continue defense and to continue to improve, I was teaching, I was going to school, I had, you know, I had been married. And so I think it helped me having that balance. And so not, no one thing was going to be totally devastating, um, but um, you know that was just my personality and how I had to do things. But yeah, that definitely was the, the peak. Uh, as I said, I was working with uh, my show Chizar here in Philadelphia, and uh, I really had gotten a lot better. After the boycott, did you consider at all going of changing that and going? Oh, maybe I'll extend and and I'm still strong and taking a shot at 84. Were you pretty? I, that I was, was it. I, I was. I was done. <laughs> I was done. I always, you know, at that point, it was. It had been enough. It had been a long time, and I wanted to start a family and so forth, and so it was time. And we have to take a break right now here on One on One. We will have more with Dr. Nikki Frank right after this. I'm Matt Leon, sports reporter and anchor here at KYW News Radio. Talking to athletes, coaches, people in Philly sports every day, you find out they have incredible stories to tell. So I started a podcast, a weekly conversation with someone you should know more about. It's called One on One with Matt Leon. Subscribe now wherever you listen. And we're back here on One on One, and we are continuing our conversation with legendary Temple women's fencing coach, Dr. Nikki Frank. 
But let's talk a little bit about coaching. Now, you co- you started in 72. This was not a situation where you were done competing and then you picked up the coaching mantle. You have a lot of your career where you're doing both there. How does coaching at Temple, and you mentioned going coming here to, to get a graduate degree, how does it come together? Well, um, we had a, a long uh, list of Temple of Brooklyn College graduates who had come to Temple as graduate exter- uh, graduate assistants uh, because they had fencing classes and they needed someone. So the person, one of my former teammates, had been here. She was graduating. So my college coach and my mother basically conspired to get me to, to leave New York and come to Philadelphia and, and uh, go to Temple. And so when I got to Temple, they had a men's team, but the women's team was a club. And because I was really very naive, to be honest, I, and at that time, men's and women's athletics were totally separate. So I went to the women's athletic director and said, well, why don't we have a team? Why is it a club? Because I didn't understand all I ever knew was a team. And so she basically was like, well, should we have a, a team? And I went, yeah. And she said, okay. So here I was, a, a, fresh, uh, college undergra- uh, a fresh college graduate, all of a sudden coaching a team. It helped my fencing, I think, in, in many ways. You know, to be able to break things down and explain it to someone else really helps you also. But again, that was part of the balance that, that I had. And, and I look back and I don't know how I did it all. Uh, you know, how I was training and going to school and coaching and, and, t- and teaching. Uh, but at that time, I was young and foolish and just kept doing things. <laughs> How difficult, because one of the things I have found in other, specifically in team sports, is great players a lot of times struggle to be great coaches or even good because they were so good at the sport. They have a lot of times pro- trouble processing. Why can't you do X? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All you have to do mm-hmm. Without, not that they don't understand it comes easier to them, but it's like almost a disconnect. Did you have any problems because you were such a good fencer going from and competing at the same time when you're trying to coach someone who maybe doesn't have the skill or the talent level you have, especially when you're young? Was it tough to, to break through that and, and kind of get that, okay, I'm at a different place than they are? You understand yeah, where I'm going? Totally. I, I, you know, to me, coaching is teaching. And, and I always wanted to be a teacher, and, uh, and that's what I ended up doing for many years. And so when we first started the team, I mean, we were taking walk-ons. We were taking kids who had never fenced before. My first All-American was a field hockey player whose friend had come out for the team and after field hockey season convinced her to come out. And so we were really starting from scratch, you know, basics. And so as a teacher, that came pretty natural to me. Uh, some of the things, you know, when you are a, str- a good athlete, some of the things are so naturally instinctive to you that you really don't, you know, you're not a student of the game just because you feel, you have a feel for the game. And that's hard to translate. And to this day, I have some trouble sometimes with, you know, why, why can't you do this? But, you know, because uh, uh, you have to really be able to break things down and, and be able to analyze things. Um, and with my my experience as a teacher, I think that really helped me. Did you feel like you were a good coach to start? 
I think I was an effective coach. I think with experience, I definitely got better. I started with no experience whatsoever, but defenses had no experience either. So it's like teaching. You know, if you start teaching a new class, just stay one chapter ahead of the students <laughs> and you're pretty much okay. And so, um, you know, with time, I, I, I'm sure I got better. I, I still strive to get better. Uh, you, you, you're never there. Uh, you should always be looking to learn. And, and fencing as a sport has changed. Uh, so much over the years. It's much more athletic now than it used to be. It's much more physical. And so you have to change with how the sport changes. And sometimes that's difficult for someone who's been doing the same thing for a very long time. So you're coaching, you're training. What is a day like for you there, let's say through the mid-70s? Once the program, I don't want to say has gotten it, but you've gotten a couple years in your program under your belt. You know where you're going, the direction there. And you're also international competition. I mean, how... How did you balance the day? And you mentioned earlier, I don't know how I did it. Like when you look back on it, was it basically like a, a 6 a.m. To, to 10 p.m. day uh, several days a week or or what? Uh, it was, They were long days. I mean, I would practice in the afternoons. I would have class uh, two or three nights a week. I would go down to the club and train, uh, you know, three or four nights a week. It wasn't something I did every day which nowadays, you know, the kids are training six days a week, and I was training maybe three or four days because of all the other things that I was doing. Um, but And then I was teaching, uh, uh, teaching the fencing classes. I also was teaching a public health class because that's what I was getting my degree in. And so I volunteered to, to teach a public health class in addition to the fencing classes that I was, had been brought in to teach. And so it, they were definitely very busy days and trying to use the mornings to get schoolwork done. Um, and as the days I wasn't teaching. When did you feel like the program really started to arrive from a, from your coaching standpoint? How many years did it take till you felt like, and mm-hmm. it's a different landscape as time goes on and stuff like that. But is it, was there a point when you were kind of like, this is good, but we've, we've got something cooking here. Once we started to, to, to be ranked, once we started to be up there with the better programs and more established programs, I would say, you know, the early 90s, starting from maybe that point on, uh, late 80s, that we started um, to to get that respect um, from other teams. And we started to have, you know, really good results uh, against some of the, as I said, more established teams. And so I, I think at that point, we just kept growing and, and getting better. And then, of course, with Title IX and with scholarships, that really helped to to boost the program. Um, because once we were able to offer scholarships, then we could go out and recruit um, experienced fences. And that made a world of difference uh, once we were able to do that. So you're recruiting fencers. How deep is that pool? And are there really certain places that you have to concentrate on that have kind of that fencing pipeline when it comes to youth and, and high school and stuff like that? Initially, I would say, you know, 20 years ago uh, and, and today, the most of the athletes that we got came out of a lot of them came out of New Jersey. New Jersey has, especially North Jersey, they have the largest high school fencing program in the country. They must have about sixty schools that have fencing programs. So at that time, before there was such an influx of private clubs, there were some private clubs, especially on the East Coast, uh, in the New York area, North Jersey area. But a lot of the kids came out of the Jersey high schools because they were experienced. Uh, now there are clubs, private clubs all over the country in every nook and cranny. 
And so our athletes come from everywhere as well as internationally. And so the, the pool has gotten deeper. Uh, the, kids are, the kids are starting much younger than they used to. When I started fencing, it wasn't – when I fenced in college, it wasn't unusual to have competitors who had just started in college, who had never fenced before. Uh, now that's impossible um, to, to really have uh, a strong fencer that had never fenced before. And so it really has changed a lot. And so now it's really um, trying to find the strongest fences. We have national tournaments uh, that are held throughout the year. And so there are probably about six of these national tournaments as well as regional tournaments. And so I can go to those tournaments and basically see kids from all over, which makes my life a little bit easier. I don't have to you know, travel. I don't do home visits or anything like that. Um, but we go to these tournaments and, and see kids, and then we can, you know, try to recruit them from, from those tournaments. If you're putting a depth chart of the skill set you're looking for in a good fencer, what are the top couple of, of uh, attributes that somebody has to have to excel at this sport? Well, in the sport today, it really helps. I, I look for someone who is a good athlete. Um, someone who has good fundamental skills, I can always develop that. But if they have poor fundamental skills, that's really difficult. And so I look at where they they coach that, who their coaches, and the type of coach they are. So good fundamental skills, good you know, fairly good athleticism. They don't have to be the greatest athletes in the world, but you know, be able to to to, to move pretty and have a good command of of their body. And then intelligence. I mean, you have you have to be able to figure out what's going on quickly and analyze it and and react to it. And so, being able to people who are good who can analyze uh, and think quickly on their feet is very important. Being an African American woman in the sport of fencing, was it a difficult road, or do you look back and was it was the the sport? accepting and stuff like that. How, how has it come along from that standpoint? When I first started, there were a few African-Americans involved in fencing. Um, I was very fortunate in that my college coach, Denise O'Connor, was very well known in the fencing field. And so we were Denise's kids. And so I think I was kind of sheltered from, from some things because I was, uh, I was being coached by Denise O'Connor. Um, it was definitely um, you very much felt alone, um, and then it got to a point where, especially, there was more uh, involvement of uh, of people of color in in the sport again through college, through school. And so, when I talked about that period of time where a lot of people started in college, that was where you found more uh, influx of of people of color, and now it's, I think, going back to what it used to be. And that's primarily because it's become uh, the top fences are all people that come out of clubs. And these are private clubs that are very expensive. The equipment is very expensive. And it's not, uh, therefore, you don't find a lot of centers uh, or clubs in areas that are easily accessible uh, to, to youth of, of, uh, of color. And so it's – and the way the USA fencing now is in order to make a team, you have to do international competitions. And until you make the, the top echelon of, of the 
junior or cadet, uh, cadet is 17 and under, junior 20 and under, until you get to that top echelon, you really don't get any support or funding. Um, and so you have to spend a lot of money to even get to that point. And so I, I think we have seen it become, go back to being somewhat of an elitist, rich person sport. And, and that's very unfortunate because uh, there's a lot of talent out there. I'm involved in an organization called the Black Women in Sport Foundation here in Philadelphia. And what we try to do is introduce youth to non-traditional sports. So fencing, lacrosse, golf, tennis, things that, you know, if kids are exposed, um, you never know how they're going to develop. And that's what happened to me. If I hap- didn't happen to go to that high school and didn't happen to have that teacher come in, I never would have been exposed to fencing. And so to me, it's all about exposure. And if we want to get the brightest and the best, we have to expose everyone uh, to and give them opportunity. And un- unfortunately, that's not happening as much as it, it has in- had in the past. And yet I looked at the looking at your team picture, it was an incredibly diverse group of of young women. What's the level of pride in being able to to open the door, not just to this sport, but what the opportunity to do this does for these young people, you know, of, of all different colors and races and, and what it allows them to, to open the door to? Well, that's one of the nice things about Temple. You know, it's a very diverse university. It embraces diversity. And we're able to carry that over to, to our team and into our recruiting, you know, to, to let people know that if you come here, you're going, to be, you're going to be interacting with all types of people, which is such a good world experience, you know, and it changes your worldview in many, many ways. Uh, like you said, on my team, we're very diverse. I have uh, a young lady who's a Muslim. I have young women who are Jewish, you know, and, and having them interact and realize we're all just people and, and how we can, you know, what the world should be doing. And so I think it's a life lesson to, to, to be, just to be exposed. You can be in a diverse university, but you may never interact with anyone who's different than you, which does happen. And being on a team, you really do interact and you really do get to know people, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Going back, we talked earlier about being a, a great athlete and trying to translate that to a coach. How tough, and is it still tough, especially a sport like fencing that's a one-on-one you're in a situation you would do X, Y, and Z to 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 win, mm-hmm. to excel. You know, you can only do so much as a coach, and then the kid is out there. How tough is it when you know what's supposed to happen and it doesn't happen? And did it get easier to deal with that as your career as coach is going on? I'm pretty laid back, I think. Um, and so I think it's important to portray confidence to your athletes, even when they mess up, that, okay, I know you can fix that and and let's move on. That's the hardest thing, especially in in an individual sport. That's the hardest thing is getting your athlete to be able to let go of a mistake and move on and and not let it affect the the next touch or the next thing that you do. And so even when I'm probably dying inside, I try to have an external, uh, a look of confidence and you got this and, and just letting them know that uh, that they can succeed um, and, and that they have to move forward and not dwell on, on the past. And so we have a, a saying with our team, you know, what's next? What's next? You know, next touch. This is what's important, not what just happened. Just learn from what happened 
and use that moving forward. But that's very, very hard. What is your favorite part of being a coach? My favorite part is just being able to interact with these young women and knowing that you've had some effect on 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 who they are. Um, you know, I, I said every year we have a banquet at the end of the year, and a parent, the senior parents usually come, and you know they all can't believe that the kids getting ready to graduate from college. It seems like they just got there, and I always, you know, say, you know, we had these teenagers come to us, and parents entrust us with with their daughters, and here you have these young women who are about to to graduate and go out into the world, and and I've been part of that growth, and and that's very very satisfying. I think that's what keeps me going after all these years. It's really not about the wins and losses, but it's about just seeing and helping these young people develop into productive uh, citizens. Dr. Nikki Frank, women's fencing coach at Temple University, thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week's show. One on One is a sports podcast from KYW News Radio. If you like the show and want to help us out, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. You can help more people find out about the podcast by finding the show on iTunes and leaving a rating and a review. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at One on One Pod, and you can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon Ten Sixty. Thanks again to Dr. Nikki Frank for joining us this week. You can follow her program online on Twitter at Temple Fencing. I'm Matt Leon. Come back next week for another good conversation with someone you should know more about.